Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you have a Bible with you, would you please open it to Psalm 74. This morning, we're going to continue in the series that you have been working through, through the Psalms of Lament. And I just want to take a moment and say how excited I am that you are working through these Psalms. And how thrilled I am to dig into Psalm 74 with you this morning. Now, in the preaching workshop on Wednesday, I received some feedback that maybe I shouldn't use words like excited and thrilled to be talking about lament. Seems weird to say that I'm excited to weep with you. Yet, I am excited because I think that the lament psalms are criminally neglected in most Christians' lives. Because we do not like to experience negative emotions. We don't even like to talk to people who are experiencing negative emotions. There's a reason our default response when someone asks how we are is good, you? We don't want to make other people uncomfortable by talking about trials and sadness. We don't want to bother people with our grief and despair. But the Bible tells us in Romans 12:15 to weep with those who are weeping. And the Psalms of Lament are uniquely able to help us do this. John Calvin reminds us of the power that these Psalms have to articulate the human experience. He says this, I have been accustomed to call this book I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. The Psalms are anatomy of the soul. They help us to properly understand, experience, and then relate the human experience. So with that in mind, let us turn our attention to Psalm 74. This is a longer psalm, so I want to divide it into two sections. The first 11 verses will show us that the questions the psalmist asks. And verses 12 to 23 will show us the resolution of the psalmist in the face of these questions and his request before the Lord. So please look at me in your, with me in your Bible to so Psalm 74, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. In all its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our sign. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I mentioned, the first number of verses offer us some important questions that the psalmist puts forward to God. And the first of these questions is this, why have you rejected us? We see this right in verse 1. 
O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Now, before we begin considering this question, I think it's incredibly helpful to understand the context in which this psalm is written. Most scholars agree that the psalm here is referring to the state of Judah after the Babylonian invasion. You see, in verses 3 to 8, we see this clear language of destruction. There are clear references to the destruction of the temple, the burning of the sanctuary, which of course occurred when the Babylonian army destroyed Jerusalem in 587-586 B.C. Remember last week that Levi walked you through a psalm that was written in a time when the Assyrian nation had just wiped out the northern tribes of Israel. Well, this psalm is written a generation or so after that, as the remaining southern tribes are destroyed by yet another evil nation. This is why the psalmist asks, why do you cast us off forever? This destruction would seem pretty final to the Jewish people. Jerusalem was the last bastion of hope for the Israelite nation. The temple at the center of the city was where they had their confidence in, and it is gone. They have seen their northern counterparts wiped out by the Assyrians, and now they are witnessing the burning of Jerusalem. They are seeing the Babylonian standards being flown where the temple used to stand, and they are given the impression that God has rejected them forever. And this context is helpful because it helps us understand the psalmist's questions. And it helps us understand the heart behind the questions. You see, this psalm could have easily been an expression of anger and righteous judgment against the Babylonians. Right, verse 11, he asked God to destroy them. The entire psalm could be that. Yet, the psalmist holds God responsible. He doesn't even bother mentioning the Babylonians by name because he knows that they are only an agent in the hands of God. So he sees the current state of Jerusalem. He envisions the smoke of burning buildings, the tears of men, women, and children being carried off to slavery, the stench of death, the horror of the temple, the house of the Lord being torn down. He sees the tragedy of war and death brought upon the Jewish people, upon God's chosen people by the Babylonians. And he says, oh God, why have you done this to us? Oh God, why have you brought such ruin upon us? Why have you rejected us? He understands that the ultimate authority behind his suffering is God. And that's important for us to remember. Because we're loath to say that. We hate saying that God is in control of the bad things that happen to us. We like to think that God only gives nice pleasant circumstances. He only blesses us. He is the father who gives good gifts to his children after all. We like to think that's the devil who's the one who brings evil. Yet the devil is only a dog on a chain. He can only go where God allows him. The Bible clearly teaches that God is the one on the throne with all power and all authority over all things. He is sovereign over your suffering and over your hardships. That is the underlying fact of this question. But within this question is another important reminder for us as well. That there is a reason behind our suffering. The question of why implies that there is a reason. Your suffering is not random. Your sorrow is not meaningless. Every circumstance in your life 
is being used by God for His good purposes. Every single one. We must remember these things in these seasons of difficulty and hardship. We must remember that it is God who is behind it all, who is using it for His purposes and His plans. Now that doesn't make it easy. That doesn't necessarily make it pleasant. But these notions help shape our mindset, and they should shape the way we pray in the face of hardship and trials. Now the second question that the psalm asks, is why do you allow the wicked to prosper? We see this implicitly in verse 4. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. And then we see it again more explicitly in verse 11, which reads, Why do you hold back your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Here the psalmist is wondering why God would let an obviously wicked nation like Babylon to triumph over them. Tremper Longman III is really helpful here at setting the scene. He comments on verse 4 in the language of setting up signs, saying that the enemy desecrated this holy place by setting up their standard, presumably a reference to Babylonian battle standard, that would have contained idolatrous symbols representing their gods. <clears throat> so there's vivid imagery here of Babylonian military standards flying over the ruins of the temple, bearing images of their false gods in the place designated for God's presence with his people. I want, to imagine, I want you to imagine that scene with me for a moment, if you will. Imagine the psalmist standing at the entrance to where the temple would have stood, a place that would, would have represented all of the hope, the confidence, and the peace of the Israelite people. So he stands on the top of the hill at the entrance to the temple in ruins. He looks over the smoke of Jerusalem as it burns. He listens to the cries of thousands of people mourning the loss of their loved ones. He smells the stench of death and destruction. The acrid smoke from Jerusalem is burning his eyes. So with tear-filled, bloodshot eyes, he looks up to where the temple would be, and he sees Babylonian flags instead. Where God should have been, abomination had taken place. So the psalmist asks God, why? Why, God, would you allow such wickedness to prosper while your people are overrun? And this is a question we all wrestle with on one level or another, is it not? I think if you've, talking, if you've spoken with an atheist for any length of time about Christianity, it's likely you've heard this argument, that if God is good and God's in control, then how can evil exist? How can a good God let bad things happen? And it's a very real and important question. It can be hard to think that God is both good and in control when we look at the world around us. When we consider what is happening in Ukraine right now, when we consider a global pandemic, when we see the evil in our day-to-day -day lives, it is tempting to think that either God is not good or he's not in control. But that is not the case. In fact, it is the idea that God is both good and in control that is at the heart of the psalmist's questions here. He asks God, why is he allowing these wicked people to prosper? He's asking, why are you, the sovereign, holy, good God, allowing this, these wicked men to prosper? And we want to know the answer. 
We want to know why wicked men continue to prosper in the world today. We want to know why so much evil seems to go unpunished. These are big, important questions. They're appropriate questions for us to ask. And that's what this psalm does. It helps us ask these questions without doubting the fact that God is good and that he is in control. We can say along with the psalmist, God, I know you are in control of all things, and I know you are perfect and good, so why are you doing this? Why are you letting this evil go unpunished? Remember, brothers and sisters, that Christians are called to mourn. Jesus himself says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We should see the prospering of wicked and evil people in the world, and we should mourn. Our hearts ought to be broken by the tragedy that we see around us. But the question for you this morning is this. Will you let the prospering of wicked, will you let the continuation of evil in the world make you question and doubt God? Or will, it, will you allow it to draw you closer to him in prayer and in faith? Now the third and final question that we see in this section is why will you not defend your name? This comes right out of verse 10. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? And here the psalmist appeals to God in a very powerful way. You see, he understands who God is. So he appeals to God's character. Throughout the Bible, we see that God is in fact a jealous God. He is jealous for his people he is jealous for the praise of his people. He wants them to recognize who he is and what he has done for them. God is meant to be worshipped by his people. He is more worthy of worship than anyone can truly put into words. And yet the exact opposite is happening all around the psalmist. He is seeing the Babylonians make a mockery of God. They are decimating his people and his temple. They are declaring their false gods triumphant over the only true God. They would be laughing at the, at the Israelites, saying, Oh, Israelites, your God would defeated the Assyrians. Where is he now? He is no match for us in our power and our gods. But I just want to pause here for a second and draw away from this story, draw you to the cross. Because this is exactly what we see at the cross. That Jesus was mocked and slandered in his trials. As he hung on the cross, Luke 23 reminds us, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So it appears that God allows himself to be mocked. There are times where God allows his name to, to look like it has failed in the world. And so the psalmist is confused. He knows that the Israelites were far from perfect. He understands that God is using this to discipline them and correct their sin. But he doesn't see how God can use such a vile and wicked nation like Babylon for his purposes. He doesn't understand how God can allow an even more wicked and perverse nation to overcome his own chosen people. He says, God, I know who you are. I know that you are a God who is faithful to your people. I know that you will defend your name. 
why aren't you? Why do you do nothing? I don't understand what is happening. Why are you letting this happen? Again, these are good, healthy questions. We should expect God to act consistently with his character. In fact, we can be confident that God will always be consistent. However, as Psalm 74 reminds us, we won't always understand what God is doing. We won't always understand why. And that is okay. That is okay. And that's one of the most important takeaways from the Psalms of Lament. It is okay to not understand why God is he's doing what he is. It's okay to not understand why God has allowed you to go through the experiences you have and that you currently are. These are healthy questions. They are good questions. And often we are way too quick to brush by these questions. We don't allow ourselves to sit and to mourn and to wonder why God is doing what he is. We try to push through. We try to pull ourselves out. We rush ourselves. Or even worse, we rush other people out of sadness into hope and comfort without allowing them to truly understand and deal with their despair. One of the things that this pandemic has revealed to me is that the vast majority of human beings are utterly incapable of dealing with negative emotions. We don't know how to experience them properly, so we escape into the internet, or we numb ourselves with distracting entertainment or substances. People are afraid of negative emotions. They are terrified, so they do everything in their power to avoid them. But the Psalms of Lament help us to push through into these emotions to not avoid them, to experience them in a healthy way with a proper understanding of who God is and how he relates to our suffering. It's truly by experiencing these negative emotions that we are better able to know God, to know his love for us. The answer then to this question of why God is not defending his name is that he has greater things in store God works in unexpected ways. He uses weakness and defeat to achieve victory and glory. This is the story of the second exodus out of Egypt. It's the story of the cross. When the devil thought he had defeated Christ, Jesus defeated sin. And he bought the forgiveness for sin for all those who put their faith in him and his resurrection from the dead. And this is the story of the return from exile in Babylon. As the Jewish people, 70 years from this song, according to God's promises and his plan, will one day return to Jerusalem and they will rebuild the temple. And we see that in Ezra and Nehemiah. That God is faithful to his people. He will accomplish his purposes. And that's what the psalmist appeals to here. We see that in verse 2. Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. The psalmist knows who God is, which leads us to the second section of this psalm. The psalmist resolves and requests. And we'll read this section in just a minute, but I want to highlight the fact that verse 12 begins with one of the most important words in this psalm, and arguably the entire Bible, the word yet. Yet is a hinge word. It signals a pivot, a change in direction of thought. The psalmist was presenting God with his confusion 
his lack of understanding of the situation he and Israel had found themselves in. And so he asked God these important questions. And in the middle of his confusion, for his confusion does not end here in verse 12, he says this. Now look with me in your Bibles to verse 12. In the middle of his confusion, the psalmist says, Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights in the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. Now, as I mentioned, this section begins with the word yet, which tells us that there's a change of thought and approach here. I'm sure that Levi in the last two weeks has mentioned that the typical patterns of Psalms of Lament is to end with a note of hope and trust. Now, Psalm 74 is kind of unique in this regard, as it does not end with this statement of confidence of God's character. Rather, it ends with an appeal. Even then, the, the statement of who God is is not so much an expression of hope as it is an expression of steadfast resolve in the face of truth. And so those are the two main things to highlight in this section. The psalmist's resolve and his request. So the first thing I want to emphasize is the psalmist's resolve. You see, he had been asking God these important questions. He'd been crying out to God, saying that he doesn't understand why or how God is allowing this to happen. Yet, he says, yet God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Surely here he is remembering the exodus. Surely he's looking back upon the fact that God has delivered his people in miraculous ways from the most dire of situations. He's remembering the fact that when all hope was lost, when the Israelites were trapped between the Red Sea and the oncoming Egyptian army, when they thought their doom was upon them, God made a way. He parted the sea on dry ground. He delivered them through his power. So he continues to highlight God's power over the sea. You see, the seas in that time were regarded as the source of chaos, death, and ruin. So he, def he announces God's victory over the seas and over the Leviathan. Now, to be completely honest with you, I have no idea what the Leviathan is. I didn't, I'm wary of anyone who thinks that they do. Because the Bible doesn't give us an exact description. The Bible doesn't answer for us what the Leviathan is, what creature it was. Because it's a symbolic creature. It is the epitome of the destructive power of the seas. It is a representation of chaos and death. 
And so by proclaiming God's power, by proclaiming God's victory over the seas and the Leviathan, the psalmist is declaring God's sovereign authority over all creation, even those things that appear to be truly chaos. There is no triumphant declaration of confidence and hope in this psalm. We see that after stating God's power, after stating God's authority over all the earth, the psalmist returns to appealing to God. The psalm ends not with a triumphant declaration that God will act, but an urgent plea for God to remember his people and to remember to act justly against those who oppose him. And I love this. I love that this psalm doesn't end triumphantly or with an answer from God. I love that it ends with resolve and an expectation of an answer without the actual answer. Because that leads us to the second thing we see in this section, the psalmist's request. I find it fascinating that, that the psalm does not end at this declaration of God's power, that it ends unexpectedly. Right, that throws us off because we're hoping, we're looking for this triumphant resolution to the problem. But rather than end with the proclamation of hope, it ends with uncertainty, with the request made to God. But so often that is how our prayers feel, is it not? So often we pray for the salvation of loved ones. We pray for healing from cancer or Alzheimer's or any manner of sickness and disease. So often we pray and we do not feel or experience triumph over the situation and difficulty. Often we are required to move ahead with quiet resolve, knowing that God is on the throne and that he is working in all things, even when we don't see how. And this psalm meets us in that place. It teaches us to remember the power of God, to remember that he has it all in his hands. Matthew Henry helpfully reminds us, when the power of enemies is most threatening, it is comfortable to flee to the power of God by earnest prayer. And we see this exact thing all throughout Scripture, don't we? Jesus himself reminds, of, uh, reminds us of this in Matthew 10, saying, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, one of the most comforting chapters in the entire Bible, reminds us that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he goes on, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Christian, you are not called to be filled with happiness in every season of life. You are not expected to have a smile on your face 24-7. There will be seasons of sorrow and sadness. There will be seasons of doubt and despair. There will be seasons when it is all that you can do is put one foot in front of the other, trudging forward with the resolve that God is working in and through the storms and chaos of life. Matthew Henry is helpful once again. He reminds us, saying that we have as much reason to expect affliction as to expect night in winter. But we have no more reason to despair of the return of comfort than to despair of day in summer. 
And in the world above, we shall have no more changes. And so the encouragement for us this morning from Psalm 74 is that it is good and proper to bring our requests to God. It is good to feel sorrow and despair. It is good to bring your pain and your hardship and your raw emotions to the Lord. Because if we do not let ourselves feel these things, if we try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, put on a brave face, and carry on, if we force ourselves past these emotions, we will not develop as healthy, mature Christians. We will not be able to adequately come alongside other Christians in their times of difficulty and despair. If Christians do not learn how to process negative emotions, then we are damaging the body of Christ. We are inhibiting our ability to lift one another up and to walk alongside one another. And so we must also balance out these feelings of sorrow and despair with the quiet resolution, the steadfast trust that comes from knowing who God is. That's what we see in this psalm. We see his resolve, and we see the psalmist's request hand in hand, working together. But we have an even better basis on which to make our request to God. We have the cross of Jesus Christ, the perfect foundation for our resolve. We have the perfect display of God's character, his love and his faithfulness. And as we look backward to the cross of Christ, we likewise then can look forward to a future that is guaranteed because of the cross. As Matthew Henry reminded us, we have no reason to despair the return of comfort. As the Bible repeatedly reminds us, all tribulations, all trials that we face in this life are a momentary thing compared to the greatness and complete pleasure of eternity. Psalm 74 encourages us not to brush off or avoid our negative emotions. It encourages us to experience them deeply, to work through them with quiet, steadfast resolve that comes from knowing who Jesus is. Knowing that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. So we should allow ourselves to feel sadness and grief. But we cannot let it overcome us. And these psalms are such a powerful tool for us as we seek to grow more and more like Christ. Remember that Jesus demonstrated the proper place of sadness and grief. He knew what it was to weep. Remember that he wept over Lazarus, knowing full well that he would raise him from the dead. Jesus could have walked up and said, everything's okay and there's no need to cry. I am here. But instead he weeps. He experiences the negative emotions. And so should we. And so this morning, I want to close with a powerful reminder from Hebrews 4.16, which says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what Psalm 74 is in our Bibles for, to help us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that in our times of need, we may find mercy and grace to help. So let us do that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, for the perfect display of your character. God, that we can look up back upon the cross of Jesus Christ, that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die 
for us. God, that we have this perfect foundation. Lord, that whenever we are tempted to, to wonder or doubt or despair, we can look back upon your Son and know that you love us and that you are faithful to us, that in the darkest hour of human history, you accomplished our salvation. God, so there is no darkness that you cannot lift. God, there is no despair that you cannot meet us in. God, so would you meet us in this place today? Would you help us to move forward as people who are able to talk to one another about our problems? Lord, that we can mourn and we can weep together. Lord, and we can push into these emotions and through them, Lord, as healthy, mature Christians. Lord, growing together and growing closer to you. Lord, and as we go from this place today, Lord, would we be a light to the world around us? Would we be a refuge, Lord, for those who are hurting and lost? Lord, would we help direct them to you? Amen.